challenge a lot of the organizations like ours in our sector to think differently as well about how we deliver care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Point of Entry, a podcast hosted and created by the Refugee Center. Thank you for joining us today as we explore the experiences and challenges faced by many newcomers to Canada at various stages in their journey. Transcending Borders, Point of Entry offers an exclusive into the voices behind the numbers and the policies behind the actions. Travel alongside the Refugee Center as our alternating host, as well as our captivating guests, guide us through the resettlement process in Canada and introduce us to the inner workings of grassroots organizations here in Montreal, Chochake. My name is Lauren. I work as the Outreach Coordinator at the Refugee Center, and I will be your host today as I introduce you to our esteemed guest, Samuel Watts, CEO and Executive Director of Mission Bonaque and author of Good Work Done Better, an established organization and book that offers a large variety of services to Montrealers and information. Hi, Samuel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. (laughs) To get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and your role at Mission Bonaque? Well, I think you've already introduced me somewhat. Uh, My name is Sam, and I have one of the best jobs anybody could have in Montreal. Uh, I'm leading an iconic organization with 160 colleagues who work with me, and I get to serve the people who serve the people in need in Montreal. And uh, so that's a, a wonderful thing to do, a wonderful opportunity, and I think a very uh, interesting as well in terms of being a, a job. I don't consider it a job, I consider it a way of serving our city. Of course, great. Great answer. Thank you very much. So it seems, of course, that you've been in this sector for a very long time and you have uh, extensive experience. So what led you to Mission Bonaque? Well, that's an interesting and probably long story, but I'll give you the shorter version. Uh, I come out of the private sector, so I didn't spend most of my career in this sector, in the community service area. But uh, I was working as a management consultant. In fact, my specialty was around team performance, so helping teams get better. And I'd worked with a number of nonprofit, particularly nonprofit boards, because nonprofit boards often need some assistance around areas like strategic planning and building a team and making sure that the organization goes in the right direction. So I probably got onto the radar a little bit of uh, Mission Banaque or Welcome Hall Mission an organization that's been around since 1892. And they contacted me, asked me if I'd be interested. Initially, I said, no, no thanks. I love what I do. But the more I got to know the organization and the more they talked to me, the more interesting it was. And the more I felt like the things that I had learned could be put to use uh, by the organization. And I was very impressed with the quality of the people And the way the organization was focused on doing things that were maybe just a little bit unusual in order to serve people better. And so that's what got me intrigued. And I started working here in October of 2016. And so it it has been a little while, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. Um, So I know you kind of touched on this a little before, but can you just explain to us the work that Mission Bonacare does, and the goals of your organization. 
So I think the simple way to explain it is we use three words around here all the time, shelter, food, and love. And what we mean by those words is we think everybody in this city should have adequate shelter, should be able to afford to be housed. Housing should be considered a basic human right. The other thing is that there's food, right? We need food in order to live. And so those are the two basic indicators of human health. If you're someone who doesn't have a place to live and you don't have access to food, at least on a regular basis, you're not going to be healthy. And so it's important that those two things be in place. But the third element, and one that's extremely important, is the love aspect. And we talk about that and define it as community, a sense of community that surrounds you. Because in order to properly function in society, we all need to have people around us who care about us, who support us. And so those are the three things that we focus on. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that through services related to housing. Uh, we're very active, as you probably know, in the sector for people experiencing homelessness. Well, someone who's experiencing homelessness, what do they really need? Well, they don't really need an emergency shelter. That might be a temporary thing but they really need to have a permanent place to call home. So we're helping people get there. And the way you get there is through a series of wraparound services. So for example, we have rehabilitation services. We have things like uh, mental health services. We have a free dental clinic that we operate in partnership with the McGill Faculty of Dentistry. So all of those kinds of things relate to people experiencing homelessness. The other dimension of our services are related to food security. So we operate two free grocery stores for people who are housed, but who struggle at the end of the month with trying to make ends meet. And so they can come in and get free groceries from us. They register, they become part of our overall services. And again, this is an entry point to people so that hopefully after a period of time, they're not going to need us anymore. So the goal that we have is always to help people find a way to get to a point where they are completely independent. And every person is different. Every story is different. And I suppose the other thing that's worth mentioning, because it's important, is youth services. We have a whole area of youth services that we've been doing for a number of years now. Uh, that's headquartered at the moment up in Montreal North. And it works with a lot of young people in two distinct areas. One is prevention, so preventing them from becoming in a situation where they're going to need our help. And the other is if they are in difficulty to provide them with access to housing and the support or wraparound services that will help them stay there. And so those are very important things. And I'm just touching on a few of the things that we do. As you know, we, it's a fairly large organization with a budget yeah. of over 30 million. So yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things that we're doing, and we work very closely in partnership with the healthcare services. Uh, we think it's really important that that link be made because I think I would define our organization increasingly as an organization that offers basic healthcare services to vulnerable people or disadvantaged folks who don't have regular access or easy access to the sorts of healthcare services that you and I might take for granted. So our job is to reconnect them with those services. Of course. And it sounds like you support people where they are throughout that entire, whichever kind of sector or need that may be, which is very, very interesting and a very interesting approach to, to the work that you do. 
yeah, it's uh, it's important to support people where they are, but also to not accept uh, that they need to stay there. And this yeah. is where one of the differences that we have with what was traditionally assumed to be how you would address vulnerable people. I call it the difference between charity and problem solving. If all we do is charity, which is important, you know, giving out something, making sure that emergency services are in place, handing out uh, food and shelter for today, that's important. And that was the way things were done 50 years ago. But increasingly, what we're looking to do is change the equation. So what can I do today that will actually help somebody get onto a trajectory so that they won't need me down the line? Maybe it's yeah. not tomorrow, but maybe it's next week or next month. And so we would contend that if you're only supplying emergency services, then you may not actually be helping the individuals who's in need. And you need to be connecting the dots to provide a continuum of care that helps that person get from A to B to C, however it is they define that, not according to what we want, but according to their definition of success. Yeah, of course. And it's something that's sustainable that will, like, as you said, support them in the long term so that you can give them those necessary tools to be able to get back on their feet. And then that's something that will be a long term uh, source of support for them, which is very, very interesting. So that kind of brings me to my next question. Um, your book, Good Work Done Better, speaks on the root causes of social challenges and on the importance of innovation. You kind of touched on that, um, but I would be very interested in if you could speak further on that and kind of what that means to you. Well, one of the common denominators that we see when somebody is in difficulty, and that difficulty could be defined in any number of ways. It could be that the person is experiencing homelessness, but it could be it could be a number of different things that are happening while the person is still housed. The common denominator is social disconnection. And that's something that we need to look for all the time because if we can rebuild social connections, we can often prevent somebody from falling into a situation where they're desperate or vulnerable. And we can also help somebody who does find themselves on the outside looking in to rebuild that sense of community, that idea that we have somebody or a series of somebodies who surround us, who care for us. And the example I use when I talk to schools all the time, and I get that opportunity uh, everywhere from the elementary to university level, and I say to them, you know, there's a good chance that everybody here in this audience has somebody that cares about them. And I usually get a bunch of people nodding and saying yes, and they're probably thinking of their friends or their family or whatever. Somebody who ends up experiencing homelessness or ends up on the street or ends up being in a very vulnerable situation often cannot point to an individual or a series of individuals who care for them and who would protect them, who would provide for them, who would surround them if they got into some sort of difficulty. And so the challenge that we have in dealing with the challenges like homelessness and hunger and precariousness and all of those things uh, is to make sure that we can help individuals rebuild that sense of social connection. Uh, it could be with family, could be with friends, could be with a community of support, but that is really the essential building block to success and to reestablishing somebody who does get disconnected. 
And so for years and years, I think we thought that, you know, handing out food or giving shelter and, you know, a number of emergency type responses were important. And I don't think they're unimportant. It's just they're incomplete. And so if we want to really move forward and do what we need to do in the 21st century, we need to build that continuum of care that helps somebody get back into a situation where they no longer need the emergency services that we're providing. And hopefully those are very short-term things. Um, we don't want to see people circulating round and round, looking for answers and unable to get them. Uh, the, the entire sector, the community sector has been woefully lacking in the sharing of information that would allow us to actually help people. So often you'll see cases of where an individual has gone to multiple resources over a period of time and not been able to get the help that they need. And those resources are not talking to one another. And so that's a challenge as well. So uh, I look at it a little bit like a hospital emergency room. If we go to a hospital emergency room and we check in there, there's a good chance somebody after a period of time probably will evaluate us, they'll ask a series of questions and we'll be sent along to another place to get care if we need more care. We're not gonna stay in that emergency room. So what we need to be doing in the social services sector with people experiencing emergencies is rebuilding some sort of network, helping them get to that point where they get to the right services quickly and they don't have to spend months or years circulating around looking to get help wandering from place to place to place. And I think that's one of the things that I advocate in the book. I've challenged a lot of the organizations like ours in our sector to think differently as well about how we deliver care. Because for years, we kind of thought that because there were people lined up outside our doors, that we were pretty good at doing what we did. So we took that external sign as a validation of how talented and great we were when in fact, there were a number of things that I think as organizations generally, we needed to look at changing. And so it's not really a sign of validation for us if we see a lineup outside our door. In fact, I would say at Welcome Hall Mission, we typically think of that as inefficiency. Uh, we'd like to serve people quickly and serve them well and serve them with excellence and not make them line up for services. Of course, that is such an interesting perspective. and. Uh, way to perceive how we move forward as an organization and kind of how we measure the work that we do. Um, so it's very interesting. Kind of speaking a bit further on that, how do you feel that you had to kind of specifically leverage this, this theory of your, your theory of an innovative environment um, within Mission Bonacari kind of when COVID, COVID hit? Or how well, do you COVID feel that is, impacted? Yeah. No, COVID is a real test. I mean, there's no question that, uh, you know, in the month of March, 2020, I, I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't nervous uh, because I didn't know what I didn't know. There was, a, we all recognize now with some hindsight, there were a lot of things that were unclear at the beginning. But one of the things that I did know was that our organization was built for a crisis. And so by knowing that, and by also knowing sort of the DNA of, of the organization, I had this sense, and I was right, that our people would step up and say, this has got to be our finest hour. We are going to make this work. So 
our strategy through the pandemic never changed. Our tactics did. And so, you know, a good example is at the free grocery stores, people used to wander around with their carts and fill them up and take what they, they needed. And it's managed according to family size. So you can't just load up all kinds of stuff. You can take certain amounts per family, but people could wander around like a regular grocery store. Well, come COVID-19 and some of the, the realities of not having people elbow to elbow, we had to change how we were doing things. So now uh, the volunteers operate from behind plexiglass and they hand things to people. The people still get a choice, but it's done differently. So tactically we had to adjust. Uh, the other thing that was interesting was adjusting to the different cohort of people that we were seeing. And so we saw some differences in who was coming in to access our emergency services. And in many cases, they were people who never would have thought that they would need uh, free food. Uh, they would have thought that that was something they were exempt from. But all of a sudden, when the pandemic hit, things changed for them. So one of the things that was interesting, too, about the mission is we've always been the kind of organization that was not afraid to take some risks and to fail. And then to say, hey, we learned from that, let's not do this or let's do it a different way. And I saw that same spirit in our teams through the pandemic. We would try things and we would say, no, that needs to be adjusted. And they would adjust it quickly so that we would serve people better and better. And as things went on, I think even the people accessing our services got used to some of the adjustments that we were making in order to keep them safe. Uh, it was really important to me as the CEO at the beginning of the pandemic to say what's critical here. And to me, the most critical thing was keeping our employees, our volunteers, and the people using our services safe. If we could do that, then we'd be able to continue to serve Montrealers in need. And thankfully, through the pandemic, with the measures we put in place, and we had a mask mandate before the hospitals did here, um, we put a bunch of different measures in, in place and we didn't have very much in the way of outbreaks. Uh, had a few cases here and there, but I think pretty much everybody did. Um, and so we ended up being able to continue serving people at the same pace as we always had. And in some cases it was higher. We were dealing with increased demand. At one point we were managing, I think seven or 800 people every night in an emergency shelter situation because the city had set up so many of these temporary facilities that they asked us to run on their behalf. So it, it created a challenge for us for sure. Uh, the challenge hasn't gone away. But we've, uh, I think, adjusted well, partly because I think the strategy was sound and the reflexes the organization had were the right reflexes at the beginning of the pandemic. And now for a quick break to give you our What's Up segment. This upcoming month at the Refugee Centre, we are introducing a series of new and exciting services, including the return of our popular language courses and in-person conversation circles if you're looking to improve your discussion skills. TRC is also proud to announce their Art Hive in collaboration with Mind Your Mind, a community art studio space that focuses on inclusion, respect, creativity, and learning. The weekly community art studio workshops will be a welcoming space where we can talk, make art, and creatively learn from one another. If you want to join our fitness or yoga classes, there's still time before the hot weather comes and we transition to outside. Head to our website to sign up for our services and stay tuned on our socials to sign up and learn about our events. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the rest of Point of Entry.
course. So you kind of mentioned supporting your team, supporting your volunteers, supporting the communities that you serve. What do you feel like was one of the biggest challenges within the team at Mission Bonnecare and how did you overcome them? During the pandemic, I think one of the biggest challenges, and we all faced this, was the ever-changing information that we were confronted with. And that was particularly true in our emergency shelter and housing operations. So at the beginning, at the onset of the pandemic, and, and even through the second and third waves, we were dealing with every week or every other week some changes, and sometimes they were significant that the public health officials were communicating to us. So what really was necessary was for me and for senior members of my team to make sure that we followed that bouncing ball because we made sure that we were on side with whatever public health was saying. Uh, we didn't wanna be caught offside. And the other thing was in many cases, we went further than what they were suggesting, for example, uh, in many of our housing facilities, I think in all of them at the moment, if you walk in, you have, you have your temperature taken. Now, does that help? I don't know whether it helps or not, but I think it's a good idea to demonstrate that we're doing that kind of screening. And so it just elevates the awareness of the fact that we are in a pandemic and we're trying to protect everybody against a virus that we don't want to have get into any of our buildings. So. There's things like that that I think were done that were necessary and that were helpful. I, I think the, the hard adjustment for this mission was the fact that we couldn't interact as much with each other as we used to. Um, there's areas of the building that I'm sitting in right now that I'm not supposed to go in because uh, I've made rules about, uh, we made rules together actually about where we isolate certain people. So the second floor is is a transition area. And unless I've got a really good reason, I'm not supposed to go down there. And so, uh, whereas if I rewind the tape to before the pandemic, many of us would meet and have lunch together. And that hasn't happened. So the social dimension of working together, some of the joy that we would experience in telling stories and talking to each other, that hasn't been as evident. I haven't been able to wander around in all of our facilities the way that I would normally wander around and just have informal conversations with people. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, we had some new people start and because we walk around wearing masks everywhere we go, um, I don't even know what they look like because uh, they're wearing masks every time I see them. So uh, those are the kinds of uh, you know very practical things. And I think we're looking forward to the day when we can maybe you know, feel safe about dropping the mask mandate and, and switching things back to a, a new version of normal here uh, in all of our operations. Of course, and I feel that social connectedness, kind of a, a key word that you used previously has been, and I'm 100% in agreement that that's been one of our, our biggest challenges as well, even at the Refugee Center, not having those face-to-face -face conversations, not being able to facilitate conversations, get to know people the same way. So I 100% I agree with you. Um, that kind of leads to my next question. Uh, how do you feel that COVID-19 has impacted the communities that you serve? Yeah, that's a really good question because there's no doubt that I think we've all been impacted. It's an ecosystem, as you know. 
And so if you look at uh, people who were experiencing homelessness, uh, the emphasis that we place on helping people get back into permanent housing became all the more important. And in fact, it actually facilitated many of our conversations because you probably saw in the news, there are a lot of people who were saying, well, I don't want to go into a shelter because who knows you know, who has COVID in the, the shelter system. Well, I get that. I understand that. But often the first step towards getting into permanent housing is to actually meet with an intervention worker. So we were able to start that conversation, uh, I think much more coherently with people to say, look, you know, we can help you and we can help you get to where you are telling us you'd like to be. So now let us do the work that we need to do together so that we can get you there. And then you won't have to worry about uh, wandering around on the streets trying to find some location to stay on any given night, that sort of thing. I think the other thing is on the food security side, one of the things that we've noticed has been that the pandemic has disproportionately affected certain key groups. And you mentioned refugees, I'd say 40% of the clientele at the free grocery stores here are refugees. It may be higher than that. Um, and so that's an important thing. Single parent families, particularly where mom is the leader of the family, again, disproportionately affected. Older people living on a fixed income, disproportionately impacted. And so we've seen that. And I think as we come out of this pandemic, it raises the notion around government policy. Now, I spent a lot of my time working with our friends in government, trying to influence a little bit where they're going policy-wise. And one of the things that I'm trying to, to communicate to them is the need for them to make certain policy changes that will actually reduce the input to the problem. Uh, I often use the illustration of a sink that's plugged, where the drain is plugged and the tap is still on. Well, if the tap is on and the drain is plugged, eventually the sink gets to the top, it starts to overflow. Well, for years and years, all that governments were really doing was helping the community sector put buckets under the sink. So we would put buckets under the sink. Oh, this one's getting full. Let's go empty it. Let's put another one there. And what I keep saying to them is let's work on the tap so we can slow the inflow and let's unclog the drain. Because that to me is the sane way of dealing with a sink that's overflowing. And so what we need to do on the policy side is work on things that will prevent people from falling into difficulty, from falling into extreme poverty, from finding themselves experiencing homelessness. And we need to help families as well, because when you look at food insecurity, 40% of those who experience food insecurity are kids under the age of 14. I think that's a tragedy. And so we need to address that, even though we've reduced overall poverty in Canada from around 15% back in 2014, where it's around 10% today, we still have a long way to go. So there are some real policy initiatives that I'd like to see our federal and provincial governments in particular implement. And I think that's another area where organizations like ours can attempt to have some influence to show them how by working together, we can actually solve some of these complex social challenges, which really don't need to exist in Canada in the second decade of the 21st century. We can solve some of these things. It's not, it's not magic. We just need to decide that that's what we wanna do and align government efforts with the efforts that exist in the community sector 
and we can achieve significant social change if that's what we're prepared to do. Of course, and, and not, not so much put kind so of much put going kind of, back to your metaphor of, of the sink and not putting these temporary solutions on on or a band-aid on something that can be sustainably resolved and through community efforts on top of that. So that is you use the right so word there when you use band-aid, because governments have been for years addicted to band-aids. And when you think about it. Government policy is often dictated by four-year election cycles. And then add in that people experiencing homelessness, people who are poor, people who are in difficulty, don't usually represent the voting block. So, you know, having a fantastic policy to end homelessness is not necessarily going to get you elected. Now, add on another layer of complexity. Who is the owner of the problem? Is it the federal government? And if so, which ministry? Is it the provincial government? And if so, which ministry? Is it the municipal government? I mean, often when you see people on the streets, people are gonna blame the mayoress, but you know, the mayoress is responsible for Montreal, but doesn't have the financial levers to do yeah. anything to resolve the problem. She's relying on money coming from the province and from the federal government. So this is one of those horizontal challenges that we need to address in concert with the actors that are actually doing the work on the ground and make sure that we put policy and implement uh, solutions that will get us to where we want to be. And, you know, taking the example of homelessness, it can be resolved, not, not tomorrow, but if you set out a series of steps by, in Montreal, because of the way the numbers are, I would say in four to five years, we could completely eliminate chronic homelessness if that's what we wanted to do. We wouldn't be able to stop people from finding themselves homeless, but their stay in homelessness really would be short. It doesn't need to be as long as what we see. We've had people who are in homelessness for two, three, four, five years. That's not something that really should exist in Canada in 2022. I completely agree with you. Kind of also touches on, on my next question. So something that you were speaking on um, throughout the pandemic, it's, um, it, and it became increasingly prevalent throughout the pandemic that the restrictions that were put in place were not necessarily inclusive of the homeless community. Did you feel that that was a barrier in terms of what you do um, and your organization? Well, initially, I think government in a number of their uh, regulations simply didn't think about the homeless uh, people experiencing homelessness. So uh, once we brought that to their attention, and you know, thank goodness I have some some good contacts in, in government, uh, they were able to make adjustments. So, for example, when we got to the second curfew, uh, the second curfew was clearly not applicable to people experiencing homelessness. It was said right from the outset. So. I think sometimes it's just a matter of ensuring that our government goes, yeah, we need to think about a number of key areas before we put a, a general regulation into play. And that's, you know, our responsibility is to make sure we go, hey, hang on a second. And uh, so we'll do that. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do was to help people get off the streets. So um, I didn't want people staying out on the streets after midnight if uh, 
curfew or no curfew. I'd like to see them in. I'd like to see them on the process of being housed. And so uh, a curfew is not helpful. Um, restrictions or you know giving out tickets to people who are loitering in the park, it's not helpful. It doesn't help us do our job. But those are things that uh, I think we've gradually been able to help our governments understand that there's a better way to get things done. And I'm seeing some real progress in that area. If I look back over the way we worked with the police in Montreal five or six years ago versus the way we work with them today, it's an incredible change. And uh, you know, today they are partners and uh, they'll even come in sometimes in some of the emergency shelters and serve meals and you know, just talk informally with people in uniform. And uh, nobody's feeling uh, in, in any way uh, you know, ashamed or, or that they're, they're being aggressed or anything like that. So it, uh, the, the mentality and the approach of the police has changed. And, uh, and I think that's an important dimension. We can, we can make some, some changes in the way that we deal with it. And it has an enormous impact on the outcomes that we achieve uh, in order to help people. Uh, ultimately, we're there to help, right? We're not there to punish. Uh, when people are in difficulty, punishment doesn't help. 100% agree. And kind of speaking on that evolution of relationships with the police, relationships with um, different government officials, what, what further evolution would you like to see? What permanent solutions would you like to see to act as maybe even a preventative measure to ensure that the homeless community isn't left out, that they are always considered when there are situations uh, like this that can arise? Well, you asked specifically about the homeless community, but I'm going to twist your or question. the general just a community, bit yeah. To talk yeah. about as not just people experiencing homelessness, as important as that is, but also people who are um, on the edge of, of finding themselves on the outside looking in. They may be housed, but housed very precariously for a number of different reasons. And I think at the policy level, a couple of things need to happen. They're the same for both uh, sets of communities, if you will. One is that there needs to be an ability on the parts of the different levels of government to sit down and align their policies and their efforts. And one of the things that I completely understand, and I've talked with government ministers about this, is that you can't do everything all at once. What you need to do in government and with policy is make choices and set out priorities. And so if governments together can make those choices, set out those priorities, determine what it is we're going to do first and second and third, and maybe what it is we're not going to do at all. Um, and that would be an, a really intelligent first step. Because one of the things that tends to happen is the federal government launches a program and they're all excited about it. Uh, reaching home is a good example of one that's in place that aims to try and put an end to homelessness, period, in Canada. It's a federal program. But the province has its own ideas and its own programs and its own plans, some of which align quite nicely with the federal plan, others of which are independent of it. But what we need to do is make sure that somehow those things mesh and that then the right resources are applied in the right areas. So, for example, I was just questioning the minister last week about the fact that the plan that has been announced with provincial funding here in Montreal identifies $280 million over the next number of years that, are, that will be spent. But $75 million comes to Montreal. 
So my question is, hang on a second. If there's 280 million, but Montreal has the biggest slice of the problem, is 75 million going to be enough? And then how are we going to allocate that? Where are our, our priority areas? Because you know, 75 million sounds like a lot, but by the time you start allocating funds and by the time you start deciding on priorities, what you don't want to do is do uh, 50 things very in a very mediocre way when you could do 25 things and do them really well. And those are the kinds of choices that need to be made at the policy level. And then organizations like ours can implement and hopefully impl implement well. And I, I think that's part of what the answer is, is we know what the solutions are. It's not, it's not a mystery. It's not like we need to go and do five years of study to figure it out. We know how to do it. We've proven that we can do it. There are upwards of 500 people today in Montreal who are in supported housing that are supported by organizations like ours. Uh, the, the rate of maintaining them in housing right now, I think is around 83 or 84%. That's pretty good for people who were chronically homeless. So we know the system works. We know how to make it work. All we need to do is put the right kinds of policies in place and fund those things in a way that makes them more scalable. Um, you know, the number of people chronically experiencing homelessness, let's say in, in Montreal is about 25 to 4,500 people, somewhere in that range. Well, that's a solvable problem. We are not in Los Angeles here. Los Angeles, they've got 40,000 people experiencing homelessness. I wouldn't know where to begin with that one. But here in this case, it's a solvable thing. For food insecurity, we have more than enough surplus food to feed everybody in Montreal. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is recuperation and distribution. Again, something that's completely solvable. And remember, I come from the private sector. So I look at this and I say, you know, if you've got enough food and you've got people in need, make the connection, make it happen. And so those are the kinds of things that we need to put the mechanism in place to make it happen. And then we'll have success and we'll start to see the success and we'll have fewer people who find themselves in an emergency situation. Hey, my name is Phil, and I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I'm here with the In the Know segment, and this week we are spotlighting diaspora artist Riz Ahmed. His art explores the experience of being a second-generation immigrant in a Western society. Listen to his episode entitled Where Are You From in the link in our bio on our Instagram. This is my last episode with TRC, and I want to thank the incredible podcast team for making Point of Entry what it is, and thanks to our amazing viewers along the way. Now back to the episode. That is such an interesting perspective that we have the solutions. It's just about implementing those tools that we already have existing to make sure that they're going in the right hands, to make sure that they're sustainable and that will support people throughout the long term. So that is very, very pivotal and impactful statements. Thank you. So kind of going a bit further on that, we speak a lot about the impacts of COVID and witnessing the cracks in our system. Um, of course, it's been, there's been a large series of challenges that have kind of come out of that, but what do you think was a positive impact that you realized throughout this pandemic? I've said this a number of times. I think the most positive thing was that we saw that within a month or two, everything could change. Now, that sounds a little strange for me to say this, but there had been this assumption, I think in the community sector, and maybe even on the part of governments, 
that when dealing with complex social problems that we had years ahead of us to uh, anticipate change. Well, almost overnight, the ecosystem went to ground zero in terms of how we would handle, how we would serve people in poverty with food insecurity, experiencing homelessness, experiencing domestic violence, make your long list of all of the things. And so for me, the positive thing was we saw that the pace of change can actually be quicker than we might've thought it was. And I think that is a great learning to hang on to is there's often this assumption connected with what it is that we do that, oh, you know, first of all, maybe you're never going to be able to change it. I certainly hear that story when I go out there and talk to people. Well, you know, there's people who just want to stay on the street. Yeah, you'll always be able to find somebody who will tell you that. That's often the first thing they tell us too. But our job is to help them visualize something that might be better than their current reality. And so um, I think we've, you know, the, the positive news out of the pandemic is the ability to affect change quickly if we can all work together at it. And certainly at the onset of the pandemic, I felt like governments, agencies, the hospital system, the community sector um, were able to gather our resources together and, and make something happen quickly that was suboptimal for sure, but people were well served. And so people still got free food during the course of the pandemic. Not everything shut down. Uh, the uh, emergency shelter system was impacted. There were a number of resources that couldn't keep functioning, but organizations like ours were able to step up because we have a certain amount of institutional capacity that we can put uh, at the disposal of the province and, and the city, and we did it. And so I think that's a positive takeaway that we can say, yeah, this, this pandemic, like, you know, if you'd asked me, was I going to spend two years of my career leading an organization through a global pandemic? You know, I would have said, you know, first of all, what's a global pandemic? Um, and secondly, I would say, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. But look at what happened and look at where we are today. And I think for our mission and the mission that we have to serve Montrealers, we're probably actually exiting the pandemic in a stronger position than when we went in, which is kind of interesting and, and maybe even counterintuitive. But uh, the experience that we've had, and I think the confidence that it's given to our team members uh, is something that I'm not sure many of us would trade, even though the difficulties and the challenges of this uh, pandemic were substantial. And not showing that things are unachievable and that things can be changed in a, a much larger rate than, than ever perceived, like you were saying. That is very, very, such a pivotal point that you've, you've made. Thank you. Kind of leading to our last question, um, people are often interested in getting involved. So how would you suggest Montreal community members do so? Well, one of the things that I say to people all the time is don't try to do things on your own. Uh, it's important that if you are passionate about helping out the disadvantaged, find an organization or a series of organizations, either in your neighborhood or 
around an issue that you're passionate about and work with them. They are the experts in the field. Uh, find organizations that are credible, uh, that uh, you know. I often encourage people, call them up, talk to the people, uh, but get involved with the organization. I always discourage people from trying to take matters into their own hands or to act solo. Uh, often, you know, it might feel good to you, but it, it doesn't really help the people. And it may actually work against some of the things that organizations like ours are doing in the field. So there's a number of different ways that people can support organizations. Of course, they can support them with donations, but also with their time and, and their energy and their advocacy sometimes. So the work that you folks are doing, I think is important work. It's incredibly important work. And I think it's gonna become more important as well because with the reopening of Roxham Road, we're gonna be seeing more and more refugees and refugees are a resource for the future. We need to support them right now, but they're a resource for the future. I have talked to the refugees that come into our free grocery stores. These are people who are quite um, usually well-educated, often come from a middle-class background in the countries they come from, and they're here to try and do something. They're not here to try and receive from the system. They need our help initially, but I think in a period of time, maybe by even the next generation, they're going to be the doctors and the lawyers that are going to be serving us. So I think it's important uh, to, to underline that that work as well is extremely important because, uh, you know, we're learning things and we're doing things and we can work together at this. No one organization, I'm convinced, can get this done on their own. We need to build partnerships across the ecosystem with like-minded organizations that have a certain capacity. You can't partner with everybody, but you can partner in a way that actually achieves more. And uh, I think that's gonna be something that we're gonna see in the future as well, is uh, more of this working together and less working in silos. I 100% would agree to, with you, especially through, through COVID. I think for us at TRC as well, it became extremely prevalent the importance of being able to, to band together and work together as a network because generally we all have the same goal and that's to support our communities. So being able to do so all together is, is much more, more powerful. So that concludes our episode of Point of Entry. Thank you so much, Samuel and Mission Bonacere for the work that you do. Um, it was such a pleasure learning more about Mission Bonacere and all the services that you provide to the Montreal community and beyond. To continue learning more about the Refugee Center, you can visit our website at therefugeecenter.org and follow us on our social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Sam, um, is there is it best to, to go on your website to learn more about Mission Bonacere? Perfect. Yeah, you can certainly go there, you know, welcomehallmission.com or missionbonaccueil.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, love to have people check us out and uh, contact us. Uh, there's a way if you want to volunteer, you can do that too. So uh, it's kind of a fun thing to volunteer at one of the free grocery stores. You, uh, you get to serve people in need and see how things operate. And we're serving about uh, 2,500 people a week. So it's a pretty robust operation. Of course, yes, we we will definitely put all of your social media um, on our posts as well so that people can can learn more about the work that you do. 
Stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you for listening to Point of Entry. Yeah, 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 yeah.